0: Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Well, good morning, everybody. And uh, happy Sabbath. I love our traditional Sabbath greeting. I just love hearing those words, happy Sabbath. But when we say the same thing over and over again we can go into intellectual neutral. Have you noticed that? Sometimes we lose track of what words mean when we say them over and over again. And so I change up my Sabbath greeting from time to time. Those of you who were here last night um, had a little bit of practice, so you're going to have an edge on those who are not here. But here's, here's my Sabbath greeting nowadays. This is what I say. I, I, I come into the church and I say, happy salvation by grace through faith in jesus christ alone day okay now it's your turn to the person sitting next to you go ahead go ahead happy salvation by grace through faith in jesus christ alone day it just rolls right off the tongue doesn't it it's just so great it's so great um, as I shared last evening, I, I, I said that at a church recently to a brother, walked in the foyer, I didn't know him, happy salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone day, and he was startled by it. He said, he said happy the investigative judgment is about to unfurl upon you and you had better be ready day. <laughs> I said, what is this, an Adventist church or something? I said to him, I said, listen, Happy I've read Daniel chapter 7 and judgment is in favor of the saints of the Most High God Day. (laughs) And that was the end of the discussion, right there. The Sabbath is good news, that's what I'm trying to say to you. You can take a deep breath right now and you can be free from all the anxiety of trying to earn God's favor because you already have it. You already have God's favor in Christ. Well, that was the best children's story I've ever heard in my life, Gigi. Thank you. high five and dad over there. Man, what a blessing. What a blessing, and thank you. I have two things I want to share with you. Two things. Number one, number one, I'm so thankful that Jesus healed your heart. I really am. Number two, I'm in love with you, Gigi. <laughs> I'm in love with you. Thank you for that story. So now I have a story for you. And for everybody else, when I was a little boy, I think I was seven years old, um, just going on eight, and it was the summer, and I had the privilege of being at my grandmother's house with my two younger brothers, my younger sister, and more cousins than I could count. The place was swarming with little kids, and our grandma was incredible, so it was wonderful to be at her house. She was the classic grandma. She was the real deal. She wasn't like any of these modern, hot grandmas like my wife. I'm a grandpa, and my wife's a grandma. And I'm telling you, you look at her, and you just don't want to call her grandma. But my grandma was the real deal. She was kind of tall, big boned, and she had long gray hair all the way down to her waist that she twisted up in a bun on top of her head and put two sticks through it to hold it there. It was just a wonder that it would stay there all day long. My grandmother made all of her own clothing on a treadle sewing machine, no electricity necessary for this woman. She made all of her dresses, same exact pattern, but different, I think she called it calico material, all the way from her neck down to her feet, those beautiful dresses. This was my grandma. She had a loaded shotgun by the front door, like grandmas used to have. (laughs) And she said that it was there in case any Democrats came around. (laughs) I didn't know what that meant as a little boy. I'm still not sure I know what that means. My grandma was a real grandma. She had her teeth in a jar by the bed. (laughs) We children would gather around the jar and look at them. She would put them in her mouth on her gums, and she would do something that was just sheer terror for us as children. She would lean down close throughout the day and she would let her teeth drop from her gums and clink around in her mouth like a horror movie. And as we children screamed and ran away from her, she just laughed her head off. She was an incredible woman, loved her. She didn't have a washing machine. She didn't have a dryer. She put the clothing in the bathtub with some detergent, filled it up with water, and we children took shifts marching back and forth on the clothing. (laughs) It would all be ringed out. She would put the clothing on a line in the backyard, if you can imagine that. Can you imagine that? You're here in sunny Southern... Maybe you can. All the clothing would be hanging there in the backyard. I remember one time very distinctly, I went into the backyard... We were just playing, but something caught my attention. I looked up on the line, and I saw my little boy undies hanging right there. And right next to them, my grandma's underwear, (laughs) massive undies, and I said to myself, my grandma is big, (laughs) and she has a shotgun, and don't mess with her. She was an amazing woman, and we loved her. We all loved her. The best thing about her was that every morning we would wake up to the delightful aroma of what she called cakes on the griddle pancakes. And we would wake up and we would rush into the kitchen to be first in line if we possibly could. All the kids would line up, and my grandma would take orders. She was a pancake artist. She had multiple bowls with different colored batter. That was before we knew that that food coloring causes cancer. (laughs) All these different colored batters, and she had different sized ladles, and she had a big griddle, she called it, on the stove. AND YOU COULD ORDER ANYTHING YOU WANTED. I WANT A DOLPHIN, I WANT AN ELEPHANT, I WANT A GIRAFFE. AND SHE WOULD MAKE THE SHAPE OF THAT ANIMAL ON THE GRIDDLE FOR YOU. AND IT WAS SO FUN TO EAT THOSE PANCAKES AND TO WAKE UP TO THAT AROMA. WELL, AFTER WE HAD ALL PLACED OUR ORDERS, WE WERE RUNNING AROUND, ME, MY BROTHERS, MY SISTER, ALL OF US, ALL THE COUSINS, RUNNING AROUND PLAYING HIDE-AND-SEEK, FAVORITE GAME. AND I WAS ALONE IN THE KITCHEN, Standing there, distraught because all the good hiding places, in fact, all the hiding places were taken. I had nowhere to hide. Just stood there, my bottom lip quivering, about to cry. My older cousin is counting up 95, 96. I'm about to get caught. I don't even have a hiding place. And my grandmother, rather casually, says to me, Ty, do you want the best hiding place on earth? I said, yes, Grandma. She just stands there casually cooking pancakes, 95, 96. Please, Grandma, where is it? Hurry. She says, Ty, I will give you the best hiding place on earth, but I am telling you, I am commanding you, whatever you do when you get there, do not look up. <laughs> I had no idea what she was talking about, but I vowed the vow. I said I won't look up please where is it and my grandmother standing at the stove lifted her dress to reveal her bony white grandma knees it dawned on me what she had in mind she gave one motion with the spatula and I slid to home base <laughs> she dropped her dress around me and I knew that this was the best hiding place on earth All the other children were found. And Grandma says as she just stands there (laughs) cooking, she says to the other kids, maybe he's outside. I hear the front door open, the back door open. They slam shut. Silence. All the children are gone. She says, are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. She lifts dress, I emerge. She says, told you, best hiding place on earth. (laughs) She leaned down close to my face and she said words that I really needed to hear. She said, Ty, one more thing. I love you. I love you and everything's going to be okay. Because the reason we were at my grandmother's house that summer is because we had just escaped from an abusive marriage, and my mom, just 27 years of age, was lying on a bed in one of my grandmother's rooms with scabs healing on her face and fractured ribs. She had received her last beating, and she was there undergoing both physical and emotional healing in grandmother's house. The memory of that woman is forever embedded in my memory, especially when I smell pancakes, even lame Denny's pancakes, <laughs> any pancakes. I smell that aroma and I remember the refuge of my grandmother's house and I remember her love for us as a family. Jesus had the very special blessing of somebody who was thinking clearly, who was emoting clearly, bestow upon him a very similar gift. I want you to track the story with me in Matthew chapter 26. On this occasion, we're drawn in to an encounter that Jesus is first having with his disciples. Now, it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings that he said to his disciples. So pause right there. The storyteller, Matthew, on this occasion, wants us to see that Jesus is now, if you come from the previous chapter where he's been teaching and healing, he's now alone with his disciples. And they're on a foot journey. They're headed somewhere. They're going somewhere. And now there's a more private conversation Jesus is with his disciples. They're walking along after he had finished these sayings, after he had been teaching. Verse two, he said to them, You know that after two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Jesus says to his disciples, In two days, I'm going to be crucified. Now, remember those words, two days. Just pull those out of the text, hold on to it for a minute. We're coming back to those words. In just two days, he's going to be crucified. Now, the thing that's fascinating at this point is that there is a complete silence on the part of the disciples regarding what Jesus has just said. This is a startling thing to say. Just casually walking along, headed to some destination, in two days, I'm going to be crucified. They're silent. Why are they silent? They're silent because a harmony of the Gospels reveals to us that they are constantly pushing back on this idea that the Messiah will die. They have constructed in their minds a false conception of the character of God that is power-based. And Jesus is in the world to deliver humanity from all coercive notions of the character of God. They don't get it. They're looking for a Messiah who will be a military political leader that will conquer the Romans and exalt Israel to the pinnacle of political power in the world. They want a Messiah with some muscle. They want a Messiah who will take some people out. They want a coercive Messiah. They want violence, and they want it now. But Jesus is, through the story of his life, whispering and sometimes shouting an entirely different narrative into their consciousness. He's trying to communicate something different to them. They're silent on the idea of a crucified Messiah. But this is fascinating because after he gives this little prophecy, we come to verse 3, and now the storyteller wants us to come from Jesus and his disciples and over to another location, another area Maybe it's across town. I don't know the geography exactly on this occasion, but there's something going on. Then the chief priest, describes scribes, the elders of the people, assembled at the palace of the high priest, who is called Caiaphas. So the religious leaders have gathered together, and they are conducting some kind of conversation that is described for us in the next verse. And they plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, get this, don't miss this part. But they said, let's not do it during the feast, the religious festival, lest there be an uproar among the people. These religious leaders, who are the professed worshipers of God and the guardians of the oracles of God, these religious leaders are literally plotting the murder of God in the flesh and using religion as a cloak to pull it off. Religion, it turns out, is the best place in the world to hide from God. Over and over again, down through history, and in this particular historic episode, we are faced with the reality that a theoretical knowledge of truth and a behavioral compliance with the letter of the law does not equate... To salvation. In fact, we get the distinct impression from Scripture that the letter kills and only the Spirit gives life. That in fact, the law of God, apart from the saving grace of God revealed in Christ, slaughters people on all levels. It is not sustainable to live before God out of a sense of obligation and duty in order to be saved and jesus comes into the world to set into motion a whole new power to move us on a different level on a different level and when jesus the story continues was in bethany at the house of simon the leper now pause here because bethany is important to the story of jesus Bethany's a familiar town for him he's visited Bethany many times because there's a family there two sisters and a brother that he has become friends with there's the press of the crowd there's the preaching there's the healings and then there's the home of Lazarus and Martha and Mary Martha's a great cook Mary's a scholar loving to sit at the feet of Jesus to learn from him. And Jesus loves to spend time in their home. That's why Bethany is popular for the most part in the Gospels. But on this occasion, unlike the others, Jesus is in Bethany not to visit that home, but to visit another home. He's there to visit the home of Simon the leper. Now, Simon is a Pharisee. He's a religious leader. He had leprosy, and Jesus healed him of leprosy. So when Jesus comes with his disciples to Bethany, he's at Simon's house for a reason. Simon had been physically healed, and now he is throwing what the Bible calls a feast, what we would call a party He's throwing a party in honor of Jesus, Simon himself, the MC, Jesus, the honored guest, to one side. We're told that Lazarus was present as an honored guest as well, to the other side of Simon, because he had recently been raised from the dead. Now, if you have leprosy and you are healed, I suggest you throw a party. Now, you are Seventh-day Adventists, so you won't know how to do it very well, but you need to get your party on, fellow Seventh-day Adventists, if you get healed of leprosy. If you're raised from the dead, you really need to do it up well. Do you know what a party's like? Do you know what a party's like? Are there people at a party, yes or no? Yeah. Are they talking or are they silent? They're chattering. They're talking. Hey, good to see you. Where have you been? Haven't seen you in a while. Is there food being served at a party? Oh, there better be food at the party. Hummus, baba ganoush, pita bread on this occasion, no doubt. So, there's food. Hey, pass the baba ganoush down here. Lots of chatter. Is there music at a party? Yeah, there's music. So, in your imagination, picture the setting. The house is full of people. Lots of party chatter, lots of conversations and laughter, and people are eating and drinking, and there's music playing in the background. And suddenly, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly, fragrant oil, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. Are you feeling what's just happened in the room? If you're in that room, all the party noise just went silent. Everybody now is looking in her direction. What is she doing here? This is Bethany, after all. It's a small town. Everybody knows everybody. And she is the infamous she. They all know her. And here she is. Coming straight to Jesus in this party, somehow she's worked up the courage. She's moved to go to him on this occasion, and she pours this fragrant oil all over his body. Can you picture it in your mind? It's on his head. It's trickling down through his beard, onto his clothing. The whole room, the house, is pervaded by the aroma of this gift. What is she doing? Why is she there? What's driving her? But when the disciples saw this, they were indignant saying, why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. So the disciples are responding with anger because they're interpreting her act as waste. But how did Jesus interpret her act? But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. What they interpret... AS WASTE, HE INTERPRETS AS GOOD WORK. AND THIS IS PRECISELY HOW THE GOSPEL WORKS. THIS IS THE INNER WORKINGS, THE PSYCHOLOGY OF SALVATION BROUGHT TO US HERE. THIS WOMAN HAS HAD AN ENCOUNTER WITH THE LOVE OF GOD IN CHRIST. And that encounter has produced in her an overwhelming sense of desire to find him, to minister to him, to be with him, to lavish upon him her gift. It's a good work. It's not waste. It's extravagance, but it's not waste. It's love. Now, according to Luke's gospel, not only are the disciples indignant but simon is sitting there thoughts coursing through his mind according to luke chapter 7 and he's thinking if jesus were a prophet he would know what manner of woman this is who is touching him. Because after all, prophets know things, don't they? If he's really a prophet, he would know, I mean, we all know, apparently he doesn't know what manner of woman she is. Or he wouldn't let her touch him. And here, Simon's theology comes to the surface. He has a distorted picture of the character of God in which he believes That God is the kind of God that when people are guilty, when they're filled with shame, when they do wrong, God pulls back from people. He doesn't even want to be touched by such people. But Jesus is allowing himself to be the recipient of this woman's gift. He's allowing this woman to touch him because Jesus knows something about THE FATHER THAT SIMON DOESN'T KNOW. JESUS KNOWS THAT THE FATHER IS EAGER TO DRAW CLOSE TO SINNERS, THAT WE IN OUR SHAME CAN EXPECT GOD TO TAKE SPECIAL INTEREST IN US. GOD LEANS IN ALL THE CLOSER when we are in need of his pardoning love to bathe our conscience and to free us and to liberate us from the self-incrimination that's haunting us. Jesus knows God. Jesus is God in the flesh. And we are watching the most beautiful unfolding of the character of God right before our eyes. But Simon's just sitting there in his dark legalistic framework saying, why is he even allowing her to touch him? Doesn't he know what manner of woman she is? Which immediately, of course, begs the question, hey, Simon, how exactly do you know what manner of woman she is? But the truth is, it comes through the story, and it's more explicit in the book Desire of Ages by Ellen White, that Simon was in fact the man in that community of Bethany who had violated this girl as a young lady and stolen her innocence from her and heaped shame upon her and drove her by his violation into a life of self-loathing, giving her body to one man after another. Yes, Simon, you know what manner of woman she is. The problem is you don't know what manner of God this is. You've missed the point. You think that God backs up when he knows. But the fact is, the secret of our healing, yours and mine here this morning... The secret of our healing is to be perfectly known and perfectly loved simultaneously. The most glorious experience a human being can ever have is to know that he knows and he loves me still. That gives me the strength and the confidence to begin to want to be with him and to experience his fellowship This woman had experienced spiritual healing, emotional healing, psychological reordering of her entire inner landscape. Simon had experienced physical healing. Praise God for that. But this woman had experienced healing on an entirely different level. Well, what was going on? In her thinking, Jesus unpacks it for us. He says to the disciples who are indignant at this point, for you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. And this is the line we need to latch on to right now. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Hmm. This wasn't just a random haphazard, messy act of emotional outburst. This was a calculated act of emotional genius. This woman had done what was customary to be done in that community, in that culture, at that time in history. They weren't embalming bodies. They were purchasing fragrant oils and herbs and spices to put upon the deceased, to honor them, to mask the odor of decay, to honor, to love those who had passed to death. And she had purchased this fragrant oil with the intent to follow straight through, as was customary, because don't you see in the text that the only person in the story who actually believes that Jesus will die is this woman. Peter doesn't believe it. John doesn't believe it. Thomas doesn't believe anything. This woman alone believes that what he said is going to come to pass, he's going to die, and she has planned for it by purchasing this fragrant oil. But then... At the last minute, she says to herself, no doubt under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit working within her heart, she changes her mind. I'm not going to put this on his body post-mortem. No. In the book Desire of Ages, check this out. The fragrant gift which Mary had thought to lavish upon the dead body of the Savior, she poured upon his living body. Form. Notice, her original plan was to follow through with the customs of the time, to honor the dead after his death. At the burial, Ellen White continues, its sweetness could only have pervaded the tomb. Now it gladdened his heart with the assurance of her faith and love. She's communicating. She's communicating to him. He's going to die. He's going to suffer. And she says to herself, somewhere along the way, I think I know a way to be with him through the entire dark ordeal. Mary pouring out her love upon the Savior while he was conscious of her devotion was anointing him for the burial. Astounding. In her heart, she knew that his love had conquered her shame and given her new life. And she wanted nothing more than to attend him every step of the way through the most trying and agonizing part of his life. And as he, Jesus, went down into the darkness of his great trial, he carried with him, don't miss this, he carried with him the what? The memory of that deed and earnest, like a down payment of the love that would be his from his redeemed ones forever. Jesus looks at the act of Mary and he says, that's precisely what I want with my redeemed ones, you and me. Mary pouring out her love upon the Savior going forward. Assuredly, Jesus says, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will be told as a memorial to her. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? He's pointing to Mary and she's, he's saying, that's it. That's what it looks like. Wherever the gospel is preached in all the world, like right here, right now, this morning, the story of Mary needs to be told. Why? Because this woman, Mary, is a prototype of what salvation looks like. Now, I know the purchase of that fragrant oil, very costly, the Bible says. It looked to the disciples, and it may look to us like an over-the-top, fanatical act. But Mary's lavish love for the Savior, I submit to you, is Christian normality. It's not fanaticism. She's not an extremist. She's just experiencing love for all that love is, and she is responding appropriately to the gift of salvation. She was experiencing What the angel had told Joseph and Mary, call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. We have emasculated this word saved, salvation, from its meaning by reducing it to merely going to heaven and having eternal life after we die or after the resurrection and second coming of Jesus. We've drained salvation of its here and now present tense glory. The word save is sozo. At the time of Jesus, it was a common Greek word. It was a medical term. The word literally means, sozo literally means to make whole or to heal, Call his name Jesus because he's going to heal people of their sins. He's going to heal people of shame and guilt. He's going to restore love to their hearts. Jesus came into our world to heal, and this is what that healing looks like in the experience of Mary. Luke's gospel, chapter 7, verse 47, I tell you, Her sins, and they are many. He's talking to Simon here. Hey, Simon, yeah, she's a sinner. Her sins are many. They've been forgiven. Notice past tense, done deal, accomplished reality. Salvation is in Christ, and we experience it by virtue of his achievements, not ours. Happy Sabbath. Happy Sabbath. Her sins, there are many. They've been forgiven. So, Jesus says, she has shown me much love. She has shown me much love. Love is birthed out of a genuine sense of the forgiving, pardoning love of God in Christ. But a person who is forgiven little shows little love now, we're not, we're not to take this to mean that Jesus is saying, hey, hey, Simon, you're a little sinner. She's a big sinner. So she loves more than you do. Jesus is trying to get into Simon's heart and say, listen, it's not that, that she's sinned a lot and you've sinned a little. It's that she gets it and you don't. You are as in desperate need of forgiveness as she is. BUT SHE'S DRINKING IT IN, SIMON. SHE'S TAKING IT IN. SHE'S LETTING IT BATHE AND CLEANSE HER CONSCIENCE. THIS IS THE HEALING EQUATION OF THE GOSPEL. THIS IS WHAT THE THING REALLY MEANS. LOVE GIVES BIRTH TO LOVE. NOW, IN THIS EQUATION, THERE'S A VERY SIMPLE, but PROFOUND TRUTH. LOVE is the means the mechanism by which god saves ellen white says in another place that i just find just amazing this is in the book thoughts from the man of blessing she says love is the agent god uses to expel sin from the life love is not something else not incrimination not guilt not duty not obligation god is working for your salvation and mine through the mighty power of his love. In one of the best sentences I've ever read, Ellen White says it this way, only by love is love awakened. And Jesus is applying the healing remedy of his love because he's not interested in merely controlling our behavior. He wants our hearts. He's trying to get on the inside of our very identities and to reshape us in the image of his love. Mary having lavished that gift upon him, upon his head, upon his body, upon his feet, Jesus now went from Simon's feast to the upper room, to celebrate the Passover with his disciples. And her ingenious act of love will attend him all along the way. He sits at the table and he says, one of you is going to betray me. If you know anything at all about what betrayal is like, his heart is stabbed with the pain of the thought that one with whom he has had fellowship is going to betray him, he says, this very night. And as he utters the words, you're going to betray me, he inhales. And his senses are filled with the aroma of Mary's gift. And right in the face of betrayal, he's reminded that somebody gets it, that she loves me in return. The disciples go with Jesus from the Passover feast into the Garden of Gethsemane. He begins to stagger as under the weight of some great burden upon him, according to Matthew 26. The disciples are beginning to wonder, what's wrong with him? And he breaks into their wondering and says, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful to the point of death. I'm dying from the inside out. Right here, right now, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he falls to the ground He begins to grab and clutch at the soil and the gravel, to quote Desire of Ages, to prevent himself, as it were, to be drawn farther away from the Father. He begins to sweat great drops of blood, Luke's gospel tells us, mingling the liquid of his own blood with the liquid of her gift. And Jesus on the ground begins to pray, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And with every breath he takes, in the midst of his agony, Mary is present to remind him I love you. I get it. I see it. You're going to die for me. I believe it. And from Gethsemane they take him to judgment. And finally, to the cross, and they drive nails through his hands and feet. and They lift the cross, and they drop it into the hole prepared for it, and every tendon of his body wrenches downward. And Jesus, hanging between heaven and earth, looks down from the cross, and Peter isn't there. And John isn't there. and James isn't there. Mary's there. He looks into her eyes, and with every labored breath, the aroma of her gift fills his nostrils, and he is reminded in the midst of his pain of her sin being forgiven and her response of lavish love returning to him. He breathes his last breath with her on his mind. They lay his body in the tomb, prepared for it. And three days later, he opens his eyes. And what's the first thing you do after you've been dead for a while and you wake up to life? You breathe. Jesus, on resurrection morning, takes in the fragrance of her gift again. He comes out of the tomb, and again, Peter's not there, John's not there. Mary's there. She throws her arms around him. Picture the scene. She's holding on to him. The King James Version doesn't do it justice here. The King James Version says, Touch me not, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. Jesus said, Don't detain me. Don't detain me. Don't hold. i got to go. But I want you to go. Tell the disciples, especially Peter, that I am risen, and Mary is the first preacher of the gospel. And as she runs off to give the news, wow, Jesus ascends to the throne room of the universe, drenched in that fragrant oil for his burial. And the throne room of the universe is pervaded with the aroma of her love. And all the angels were told in the book Desire of Ages, bow down before him and begin to worship him. And Jesus does something, according to Ellen White, very, very strange. He refuses their worship, tells them to get up. Can you imagine? They they get up. Okay. He has unfinished business. He turns to the Father with one question. Father, can those whom you have given me be with me here where I am? Can Mary come here with me? Can Ty come here with me? Can they come? And the father no doubt smiles for the first time in 33 years. Well done, son. Beautiful. Our love for them is crystal clear, and anybody who looks will live. And now Jesus has the one thing that matters to him, the assurance of your salvation and mine. And I love this line from The Desire of Ages that closes off this picture. He did not count even heaven itself a place to be desired while we were lost. I don't know about you, but every time I smell pancakes, I think of my grandmother's love. Maybe from this day forward, every time you and I encounter anything beautiful, we could remember the Savior's love and begin to respond to him, not because we have to, but because we want to, because we love him precisely because he first loved us. Father in heaven, you are so incredibly beautiful. Thank you for loving us the way you do. May we never lose track of who you are to us. God, hold our hearts. Heal us, dear God. Heal us of our shame. Heal us of our sin. Help us to stand before you in the dignity of our God-given humanity forgiven and innocent in your eyes. In Jesus' name, amen.